Matthew 7, Jesus' words to somebody probably a lot like you. I wonder how many of you have had a hard providence befall you. And when it happens, you begin to question, how could a good God allow this? I wonder how many of you have a prodigal child of your own that you have interceded for, pleaded for, prayed for, world without end, for days, weeks, months, indeed years, only to see little to no fruit. I wonder how many of you have secretly questioned whether or not prayer is productive. Is the Lord answering? I wonder if you've questioned, is it necessary? Other people seem to get what they want without prayer, and I don't get what I want with it. If that's you, this is the Lord's word to you this day as we collectively grieve on behalf of our beloved pastor. Matthew 7 and verse 7, Jesus' immortal words in his most famous of sermons, the famed Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in Matthew 6, as you surely recall, famously taught us how to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But it is in chapter 7, in verses 7 through 11, where we see Jesus instruct on why we ought to do what he taught us to do. And if that great why is tearing away at you this hour, then hear now the words of our God from the lips of our Lord Jesus himself. If you found it, why don't you stand with me as we read together God's word. Matthew 7 and verse 7. Let's hear our Lord and then pray for our pastor. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread... Which one of you would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, I mean, who would you, who amongst you would give him a serpent? See, if you who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask of him? Would you join me? And let's ask the Lord to move this hour. Father in heaven, we plead mercy for Clinton, Connie Presley, for their son, Mac, for his parents, dear members of this church, Clint Sr. and Brenda, for Clint's sister, Amy, for all who knew Nate best, and loved him most, we pray that you would do what you have promised to do, and that is be near to the brokenhearted. We ask, O oh God, that you would show yourself to be what in truth you are, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our moment of anguish. Minister, sustain, and strengthen as only you can our beloved pastor and his family. And for we, your people, this church gathered at a place called Hickory Grove. I pray that as we not only mourn on behalf of our 
pastor, but privately introspect on how we respond to the hard providences of life, how we privately wrestle with the creeping, nagging doubts as to whether or not you hear us, you're there, you care. I pray that you would do what I cannot, and that is speak to your people by your word. Pierce them, I pray, by your word. Till the soil of hardened hearts this hour. To the glory of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder how many of you in this room carry a quiet cynicism about prayer. Perhaps you'll admit you're just a little too distracted. Every time you pray, your mind begins to wander. Maybe you feel too confused and you wonder what's wrong with me. I'm, I'm not doing it right. Perhaps you find yourself a little skeptical wondering, I mean, was that an answer to prayer or did that just happen? It seems like maybe it was coincidence because, you know, people that don't pray, they get that stuff too, so maybe it was just happenstance. I wonder how many of you are cynical in this room thinking, I feel like I'm just whispering to the wind. Every time I pray, I don't think it accomplishes much of anything. Consequently, I guess... I'd guess there's a great number in this gathering who must confess that they're weary. You ever found yourself wondering what's the point of prayer? Especially if you have been pleading for years only for the worst to happen. If you've been crying out to God and it's as if he does not hear. If that's you, Jesus has a word for you this day. It's not me, it's he. And his word dare I say, skewers your skepticism. It confronts our innate cynicism that all of us harbor to one degree or another. And here's what's amazing about it. He does this not with some cold logic, like a heavy-handed father who just says, snap out of it or get over it. This is a loving, tender word of encouragement which is to be expected from our Lord, our Good Shepherd, who comes and with utmost kindness is helping us understand why we must do something that is so simple. The youngest in this room who can hear my voice will understand it. Let me speak it over you and don't let it go in one ear and out the other because I'll admit it is simple. But if you can grip it by faith, oh, I pray it will strengthen you, sustain you, and stir your soul unlike anything else I could say. Jesus' words to us in our hour of grief are simply this. Don't Stop praying. Now, I didn't make this up. It's straight in the text. When you read Matthew 7 and verses 7 and following, you'll miss something because it's not immediately apparent in the translation. When, when you read the words ask and seek and knock, do you know those three words, they're actually what you call present imperatives, which means basically they literally are saying this, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't stop asking. Don't stop seeking. Don't stop knocking. Now, immediately you may start thinking cynically, well, do you have to bully God to get him to answer you? This seems a little weird. Why would he want us to just like keep pestering him like this? Is persistence necessary? I mean, what good parent would only answer their kid if they just begged and begged and begged and begged? What's God doing here? And this isn't critical. I want you to hear this. The Lord's logic, masterful as it is, higher than our greatest thoughts can be, Though it may be, his logic, it's important that you understand, is not for him, it's for us. 
In other words, he has designed it this way for our good and his glory. I want you to see in this text that he gives us three massive reasons why we must never stop praying, why you must just keep praying despite years of it feeling as if the Lord doesn't hear you. Don't relent. Don't let up now in the hour of grief is the moment you must persist in prayer. Three reasons, mark them down. The first thing I want you to note, it is because he knows you better than you know you. He knows you in a way you cannot fathom. And I want you to see behind the three words, ask and seek and knock. I want you to see three ways he knows you as we can uh, deduce from these three words. When he tells us to ask, Let's consider what it means to ask somebody. You kids in the room, you know, if you need to ask mom and dad something, it means that mom or dad are probably in the room. So to ask them, you just go look at them and, and ask them a question. You're, you're assuming that they are near. So it actually tells us a couple things about you as a little kid. It means, one, you recognize that you're needy. You have a need. I need something. I'm going to go ask mom because I know that I can't give it to myself. I need mom to give it to me. I'm not only sensing my own need, I am humble enough to recognize only mom can give me what I need. That is the disposition of heart that God is calling us to when we ask of him. We must assume he is near, and with utmost humility and a sense of great need, we come before him in utmost dependence. But is it true for you that all too often, are you anything like me? Is your heart more often not one of dependence in prayer, but one of demanding in prayer? You petition, Lord, I need this, and I need this when I want it, how I want it. And he is calling us first to see that he knows you better than you know you. He knows, first I want you to mark down, he knows your need. He knows what you really need and why he is calling you to ask of him. Just like a child would ask of their parent, you go ask your father what you need, and he is going to meet your present need. Ask of him. He knows your need. But there's another word he uses, not merely ask. He now uses the word seek, which is different. What does it mean to seek something? To seek assumes that mom or dad, let's go back to the picture of kids, mom or dad are not in the room anymore. To seek out mom, for example, at home means she's probably in the other room. You, you don't see her. So you're going to get up and you're going to go find her. It, it, in other words, infers for us that you got to do something active. you got to get up. You, you got to go find her. Now, what boy or girl in this room is allowed to just yell, Mom, in the house to try to seek her out? If you're anything like me growing up, you'd get in trouble if you just yelled Mom's name through the walls. Mom and Dad always expected that we would get up and go seek her out and then find her. It infers for us that we need to do something active. We, we get up and we seek the face of the Lord. I also want you to see that it, it should infer for us a measure of sincerity. Here's what I mean by that. You're genuinely seeking, not just kind of like looking. I'm about to touch a sore spot in many marriages, but bear with me. Here's an illustration. How many of you husbands and wives have been sitting on the couch together, and you can't find the remote? And your wife asks you, hey, do you know where the remote is? And you're like, you just kind of like look around. Like, yeah, I don't know where it is. I can't find it. I, I sought for it. I can't find it. And she says, well, did you turn over the pillow? Did you put your hand down between the seat cushions? Did you do anything? And you're like slowly sinking into the couch, and you're like, no, I just kind of looked around. There's a world of difference between looking and seeking. 
It infers for us a heart that is actively pursuing the Lord. And here's the truth. How many of us in this room must admit that your heart is prone not to actively seek? Could you say that to be true? If you're anything like me, do you want to know what my heart is more prone towards? A passive type of praying. I pray so often ritualistically. It's like a good luck charm. I just pray because that's what you do before a meal. I pray because that's what you do before you go on a road trip. I pray because that's what you do before you put your child to bed. But it's just ritualistic. Consequently, so often my prayers are, dare I say, faithless. It means I'm praying and I'm wondering, is this actually accomplishing anything? As I throw up words to my Lord, is there, are they just bouncing off the ceiling? Is he hearing any of it? Oftentimes my prayers are, should I say, presumptuous, meaning I, I kind of use uh, the Lord as if he is a password or a magic spell. If I pray this, then I'll surely get this. And that is what he is calling us to not do, to lay aside the weight of passive praying and to actively, dare I say, expectantly seek his face. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and it will find. He not only knows your need, he knows your very heart, which is why he is calling you not to sit back, so to speak, in this chair, but to get up and to actively seek his face. But there's a third word, and the third word infers for us a different picture altogether. To ask assumes your parents in the room. To seek assumes your parents just out of sight in the other room. But to knock assumes that your parent is inaccessible. There's a door closed between you and your child. How many of you boys and girls in this room wake up in the middle of the night, you get a little scared, and you go to mom and dad's bedroom door, and you knock on it. It's 2 a.m., they're fast asleep. I doubt any of you would just knock once, and if they don't answer, go, I guess they're not there. Any of you parents in the room know, unfortunately, that there is some natural built-in persistence with the knocking that is just ingrained. They're going to knock, and they're going to knock till somebody comes to answer it. And this is actually the illustration the Lord is giving us graciously as his children. I want you to knock like a child would knock on mom and dad's door. Don't just merely ask. Don't just merely seek. But I want you to persistently, with determination, knock to knock down the door, so to speak, to actively, persistently, with determination, pursue me because he not only knows our needs in our heart, the reason I think he has designed us to just keep praying is because he also knows our natural built-in doubts. He knows how prone we are to knock once, and if we don't get an answer, throw up our hands and wonder if he's even there. Which is why when the Lord calls us to ask and seek and knock, to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking, he is using this. This is his logic, not ours. He is using this to teach us to depend with great determination on him. He is saying, in other words, you keep on knocking. I know your doubts, and I am going to use your very doubts to instruct you. I am helping you see that there is a God in heaven who does all that he pleases, and he not only knows you, but now he changes gears in verse 8, and he wants us to see that the same God that knows you is the same God who, take it to the bank, he sees you. Oh, forgive me, he hears. I made a big point and I said it wrong. He hears you. I want you to see that he hears you. Did you notice what's so strange about verse 8? It almost reeks of prosperity gospel. 
Because if you read it, on first glance, it might lead you to conclude that, well, okay, if everyone who asks, well, they're going to receive. And everybody who seeks, sounds like they're going to find. And whoever knocks, sounds like the door's going to be open to them. So there, should I therefore conclude that God is going to hear me and give me what I want? And this is what I want you to see. Uh, it may not be exactly what you were expecting, but it's going to be close. I think verse 8 is a precious promise. It's like a jewel that I want to hold up and spin around so that you can look at every angle of its glistening glory. Verse 8 is a precious promise for us. And I want you to first see, let's just hold it up and look at it. It's, it's not an isolated promise. This is not the only time you see God promise in the Bible that he will hear your prayers. Time and again, if you read the Old Testament, virtually every prophet, in essence, tells us in one way, shape, or form that God hears our prayers. Just mark down in your margin, for example, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 33 and verse 13, when he says, call to me and I will answer you. This is a theme of the Bible. It is not an isolated uh, promise, but it's also not an unlimited promise. This is a promise that you see time and again made to believers. In fact, the word everybody in verse 8 contextually is talking about believers. It's the people to whom Jesus is addressing in this sermon. It, it's, in other words, a promise for those who are in Christ. And one of the reasons we know this is because it's also a promise not for the unrepentant, which is a sobering word, but a critical caveat we must take into account. Mark in your margin, Isaiah Chapter, uh, forgive me, mark in your margin, Psalm 66 and verse 18. Psalm 66 and verse 18 records that if you cherish iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear you, which is a reminder that the Lord does not hear the prayers of the good and of the righteous, of the clean and of the kind. He hears the prayers of the needy of the humble, of the destitute, of the repentant, of the ones who know who they really are and know who he really is. So that is at once and the same time a great encouragement and a great warning to us. If there is harbored sin in your heart, cherished sin in your heart that nobody knows about and so you therefore think it is secret and safe and sound, hear now the words of our God to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Confess this sin this moment and receive the plentiful redemption that is found in the person and work of Jesus. You confess your sins and he is faithful and he is just to cleanse you and to forgive you. He will hear the cries of your heart. It's not an isolated promise. It's not an unlimited promise. And I want you to see verse 8 is also, for lack of a better word, it's not a transactional a promise. And here's what I mean. It's not a promise that if you ask, well, then you're going to get whatever you want. If you seek, you're going to get whatever you want. If you knock, you're going to get whatever you want. The promise is one in which he may not give you what you want, but he's going to respond to you one way or the other. A perfect example of this would be the Apostle Paul. Do you recall Paul prayed fervently, earnestly? He pled with the Lord to remove that so-called thorn in the flesh, and yet the Bible says that God allowed it for Paul's good and God's glory, which means the present hard providence that is befallen you, that makes no sense, that you have no rational explanation for. It may be that very providence that he is using to fulfill his most precious of promises in Romans 8 and verse 28. God works all things 
together for your good. All means more than the good things. He is working everything, the good providences, the hard providences, the most frowning of providences. He is using that for your good and his glory. So take heart. This is not a transactional promise in which you get what you want. You're going to get what he knows you need. You may also not get it when you want. A, a good illustration of this is a missionary you probably never heard of. You ever heard of a man named William Leslie? I doubt it. I hadn't. He was a medical missionary in the Congo for roughly 17 years or so. He thought he was an abject failure, and upon his retirement and death, he died a dejected, despondent, depressed man, thinking that the Lord did not use him in any meaningful way, until evidently, many, many years later, it was discovered that a vast network of churches had been thriving due in large part to his unsung, unseen ministry. The Lord indeed answered the prayers of this dear brother, this saint on the front lines, and he didn't even know it, for the Lord's timing is not our timing. Oftentimes, the fruit uh, of our ministry will end up being born on other trees. Praise God that his ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. His ways are infinitely higher than ours. So take heart that this is a precious promise to you, though it may not be as transactional as you would desire it to be. He hears the prayers of his people. He knows you. He hears you. But may I give you one third and final word this Lord's day that I dare say will stir your soul to face the weak as the hard providences of your life befall you and as you grieve these most hardest of providences that have befallen our pastors. And that is this, that our good God who knows you and hears you, he thirdly and finally Oh, it's as simple as can be, but it is profound. It's in truth, my friends. He does indeed love you. He loves you. And he does so like a father would his child. In fact, Jesus uses this very illustration of an earthly father and a perfect heavenly father. He says, well, what earthly father? This is verses 9 and 10. What earthly father would give his son a stone when he needs bread? Or who would give him a serpent when he needs a fish? And he's saying, any dad with their salt would never do that. That's cold and cruel. How much more our Heavenly Father? You really think our Heavenly Father is going to give you a stone when he knows you need bread? You think he's going to give you a serpent when he knows you need fish? In fact, let's extend the analogy. Sometimes in our ignorance, let's just put ourselves back as a child, sometimes a child might very well mistake a stone for bread. Or they may mistake a serpent, I don't know how, but maybe mistake a serpent for a fish. You're just not really thinking. And so, too, our good God not only gives you what you want, he protects you from those things you think you need, but you don't. Oh, how infinite is his wisdom. How inscrutable are his ways, where he knows what you need, and he is actively protecting you from that which you think you need, but you don't, and graciously giving you that which you need. If an earthly father would do it, how much more a perfect heavenly father. He knows what you need. He knows your hearts. He knows the hidden doubts within you. But this same God, like a good father, hears you. What good father just thinks that their paternal relationship to their child is sufficiently fulfilled if they just provide for them? You know, that's the problem, by the way, with a lot of father-son relationships in this world, is the dads work really hard sacrificing to pay all the bills, but have no real relationship with their child at all. Let's just consider uh, my favorite book on prayer. There's a book by a man named Paul Miller entitled A Praying Life. This book uh, illustrates in one part about a counselor talking to a, a man who came for counseling. And this Christian counselor asks the man, tell me about uh, 
being a child of God. What is it like to be a child of God? And so the man with theological precision answers like any church member would at Hickory Grove, and I would be proud if you answered this way. He said, it means that I've been justified, I'm sanctified, I'm glorified by God, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God, he is protecting me, he is with me, he's a big God, he is taking care of me, those are all wonderful things. And the counselor responds, yes, that's true, that's all well and good, but what is it like to relate to him? How, how do you, what is it like to spend time with this father? And that man who had all that theological knowledge and precision begins to wilt stammer and stutter and says, well, you know, truth be told, every time I try to, I, I don't know, my mind wanders, and I, I honestly, I kind of feel distant from him. I know things about him, but I don't actually feel like I know him. And any counselor worth of salt would have responded as this man did. He said, do you understand how dysfunctional your relationship actually is? You know a lot about him, but you don't know him? So too, like a good heavenly father, he is saying, if you know things about me, but you don't know me, you don't commune with me in prayer, it is no different than if you married a wife but never spoke to her but through an intermediary. How dysfunctional would that be? It's as dysfunctional as you never speaking to your child but always using your wife or another one of your children to be the intermediary between you and that child. So too, he is saying, you must come to me. I am a good heavenly father who loves to hear you. I know you. I hear you. And he is saying, I, I actually do love you, and I've proven it. How do parents most commonly prove their love for children? Of course, there is probably no better way for you to show your love towards your child than the sacrifice for them. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, most of it goes unthanked. But you don't even think about it because this is an act of love. It's an unconditional act of love for your child. And Jesus is reminding us how much more does a good heavenly father who has sacrificed for you infinitely and perfectly, dare you ever think that I don't love you, though I may seem distant, though I may seem afar, though you may not think I am responding to you in a timely manner, I am a good father who loves you for I have sacrificed for you the ultimate cost, and I have done so by sacrificing my own son, Jesus Christ, my Lord and yours, who died on a sinner's cross, taking the curse of sin and death, crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of our sin was placed on his shoulders, and he cried out in finality to Telestai, it is finished. The curse of sin was at that moment broken so that you could taste what you could never get on your own. You could taste life eternal. It's a miraculous gift that is born only through the sacrificial blood, the person and work of Jesus Christ, my Lord and yours. For God so loved you that he gave Jesus for you that who anybody, any of you, whosoever believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life. And so, dear friends, it is to this God that we must never stop praying. Oh, you just keep coming to him, for he knows you, your needs and your heart and your doubts better than you know them. He hears you even when it seems like he doesn't, and he loves you better than the person who loves you most this side of eternity does. But my final word, I'm afraid I must say, is not to those of you that have been praying, though that is a key takeaway from this message. Keep on, don't stop. But I trust there are probably a great many upon the sound of my voice that must admit that the takeaway for you this Lord's Day is not just keep praying. 
It's let's start praying. I wonder how many of you know that you have no relationship with him whatsoever. There is no communion with God. Perhaps you've been coming to church for years here, and you know you are as far away as a mother is going to the grocery store and leaving her child at home. You are far. If that is you, I pray that this moment you would start praying in your pew, this second, you cry out to him, for he knows you better than you know you. He knows every dark thought in your mind, every quiet, secret, dark recess of your soul. He knows the worst version of you, and it is that version of you he loves and came to save. It is that version of you that is, he is calling to himself this moment. So don't hide. Confess your sin before him. Just cry out to him and say, I am who I am, and I confess that you are who you are. Oh, God, would you save me? He knows you. And he will hear you. The Bible actually says that if any man calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. And so cry out to him this moment. Bank on his precious promise that he will hear the cries of repentant sinners and take heart that this same God who knows and hears you, he in truth will love you and you will join the chorus of all creation and sing forevermore of the blood of the lamb that has been slain for you. That is why we are a people that sing of the blood of Jesus. That is why we are a people that do an odd countercultural act called the Lord's Supper where we take of some bread and take of some cup and tell one another that it symbolizes the body and the blood of Christ. That is why today we are going to conclude our service by taking this Lord's Supper, by doing just this, by commemorating the body and the blood. And so as we do, my final word to you is, O oh, Hickory Grove, in the throes of our grief, as we mourn the loss of our beloved pastor's son, as our heart breaks for those whom we love, as we face our own difficult, hard, heavy providences, Oh, don't let the devil lead you to buy this most malicious lie that your prayers are for naught. Dear church, don't stop praying. Would you join me as we pray? And with your heads bowed as we go to the Lord, I'd like to conclude my message somewhat differently. Instead of responding at first through singing, I'd like for us to respond with the highest and holiest of Christian responses, and that is through the communal partaking of the Lord's Supper. I want to give you an opportunity to privately cry out to the Lord, and as you do, search your own heart, examine yourself, confess sin before Him, ask the Lord to restore to you the joy of your salvation, to strengthen you to keep praying, and as you do, I would also invite you to take your elements that you should have received upon entry. And it would be advisable to prepare them, for in a few moments I will lead us in the supper together. It's advisable to open the bread before you open the cup. You do that now, you pray silently, and in a moment I will lead us together in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.